to Romans chapter 11. We have been going through the book of Romans, a highly doctrinal and theological book, but it's very, very foundational because the way that we act and live and behave is going to be based upon what we believe we are, how God has saved us. And when we are motivated properly, we are motivated by truth and the truth of how and the extent of what God has done in our life comes through in the book of Romans, how God has brought all things to pass, particularly in the process of our salvation. Romans chapter 11. Last week we looked at how Israel had rejected God, how Israel had rejected God when the gospel was presented to them. And this week we'll be looking at how Israel and their relationship with God, whether or not that rejection is total as a nation. What is the future of Israel? And Paul answers that question here as it comes to the book of Romans, chapter 11. We'll be reading through verse 10. Romans, chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study of God's word this morning. Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant to us understanding just as you granted to Daniel and his three friends, that you granted to them knowledge and understanding of your ways. And we pray, O oh God, that these things might be of concern to us because they are of concern to you. So, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see great and mighty things from your law. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Today might be a little bit different in terms of the message because much of it will focus on history. Much of it will focus on history because throughout history, Israel has been a focal point. Israel has been a focal point in the world. 
The nation itself is small, but it's at the heart of religious and political conflict many times throughout thousands of years. Even when you turn on the evening news tonight or many nights, there's always news about the Middle East or about Israel. Whether it's some archaeological discovery that's been found, whether it's some political news story, whether it's some conflict that Israel has, it's often front and center in the evening news, front and center in the news of history. And it's front and center oftentimes in the scriptures as well. Now, when God chose the nation of Israel, he didn't choose the nation of Israel because they were a mighty country, because they were a powerful one. He didn't choose them because they were uh, very, had great potential. In fact, Deuteronomy 7, 7 tells us the Lord, when Moses tells the new generation that was wandering in the desert when they were about to enter into the promised land, Moses says to them, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers and he brought you out by a mighty hand from the house of slavery. In other words, Israel wasn't chosen because they were compliant, because they really loved God as much as they ought to or were obedient by any stretch of the imagination as we see in the Old Testament. In fact, they were small. They were unfaithful. They were unbelieving. They were obstinate. They were difficult. They were legalistic and they rejected the Messiah. But it's because of God's love. One of the questions that comes in when we often talk about Bible prophecy, we talk about the future events, when we talk about what will happen in the future, as I know that many people are always interested in, what will happen in the future of our world, being that Israel is so, 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 so much at the forefront of all that happens, what is the future of Israel? That question is answered here. When we talk about the future of Israel, particularly after we've seen chapter 10 of how Israel has rejected God. And we learned last week about how our, our, our heart is many times perhaps discouraged because we share with others and they reject Christ. And yet what happens to Israel? What happens to the nation of Israel? When we look at the future of Israel, we look at two particular aspects. One has in regards to the land what will happen to the land of Israel that was promised to them? Secondly, what happens to them as a nation spiritually? And so we begin at this passage that talks about Israel. We begin to learn, well, how did Israel come to be a nation, first of all? And so I want to go through a section here on history so that you understand where Israel has come, why they're so important, where they are at now, and where do they fit in in the future? Because Israel is at the heart of the scriptures, really, as a nation. So when we look at the future of Israel, we look at the past first. In Genesis chapter 12, if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, this is the promise that was given and how Israel began, how the nation of Israel was born. It was born and Israel themselves consider Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, or at that time his name was Abram. As the father of Israel. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Abram 
was a man who was an idolater prior to coming to Christ. He was a person who worshipped other gods, as Joshua 24 tells us. But in chapter 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and your name will be great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. That is how Israel began. It began with a promise to a 75-year-old man. That's how old Abram was at this time. 75 years old. And here God calls out to him and it says, Abram, I want you to go forth from your land, from your people, from all that you've known. And this is a big step for him. Because in that culture you realize that to leave your family, to leave your land, to leave your people group where he was at, was to leave all of his inheritance, to leave his rights, and to leave for a place which God would show him. And this was a huge step of faith, and yet Abram decides to follow God. And he does so, and he goes, and he leaves. Genesis 12 is called the Abrahamic covenant, Abrahamic promise, the promise that God makes to him. And that promise is ratified or confirmed in Genesis 15. When we turn to Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6, a few chapters over, God tells him, and he took him outside and he said, Now look at the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abram was wondering, how in the world will I know or what will happen to this promise? Because when you come to Genesis 15, he is now 85 years old. Ten years later, he has no child. He's wondering about this promise. And here God says, look at the stars in the sky. That's how many children and descendants you're going to have. And Abram believed God. And this in this passage is where Abram becomes saved. For it says, he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And when Martin Luther, the great reformer, looked at this particular passage, he realized that the Catholic Church in their indulgences was not teaching that which was true. For righteousness is given by God, not by the church. And here Abram looks and he believes God. And to believe in is usually always in the salvific sense in the Hebrew here. It is where Abram was saved and God tells him that he's going to go to this land and he's going to possess this land in verse 7. And God confirms his promise. How does he confirm it? We look at the following verses there. He cuts these two animals. He says, bring these animals. And he takes these animals and he divides these animals in two. Do you see that in Genesis 15? Divides these animals in two. And then he puts Abram to sleep and God walks between these animals. Regarding this promise and covenants that were made back in those times to do such a thing between two kings, the kings would divide animals between two and walk between them, signifying what? That upon my very life, if I do not keep this covenant, then may my life be taken just as these animals were taken. And yet, what was unique about this covenant, this promise that God made to Abraham, 
was this. That it was based upon God's life alone. And because God is an eternal God, and because God put Abram to sleep, and God walked through those animals, it was symbolic of the promise being unilateral. That it was only based upon God and His eternality that nothing would ever break this promise that was given to Abram. This promise of land, this promise of seed, this promise of blessing to the entire world. And that's why when you wonder, you watch the news at night, and you wonder why in the world is Israel fighting over the land? Why are the Palestinians always trying to fight and gain back the land? And why is Israel always trying to get more land? Why in, 19, in the 1980s was there the, the, the war that occurred in which they took large swaths of land? And why are traditional Jews so angry when Israel gives up some of the land as a government to make peace with the Palestinians? Because of the conviction that this passage speaks of, that the land was given to them and should be theirs because of God. Because of God. God gave it to them. Israel began with a man named Abram, and his name was later changed in chapter 17 to Abraham. He had two children, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the promised seed that came when Abram was 100 years old. And Sarah was 90. Imagine that. A 90-year-old woman who has her first child. Then Isaac has two children, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob, from Jacob came the 12 patriarchs. The 12 patriarchs. What we know as the, 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 the 12 tribes of Israel. Of course, Joseph, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh and Levi, became the royal priesthood. But because of famine, this small group of people, maybe 70 or so, came and moved down to Egypt because of famine. And by God's grace, in the movement of history, from 70 people, if Abraham was the seed, then Egypt was like the womb. And out of Egypt, God delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh, and numbering some two and a half million people who came out of Egypt, crossed through the Red Sea, wandered in the wilderness, and then God opened up the Jordan River for that second generation in which they poured into the promised land, though they did not inherit all of the land in Israel. Soon, though, Israel became idolatrous and they turned against God and they wanted their own king. They wanted their own king and they got three kings, Saul and David and Solomon. And after Solomon, the nation divided. The nation divided the nation of Israel into the northern and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had all evil kings, ten of them, ten of them. And because of their sin, the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. And later on, Judah and Benjamin in the south in 586 B.C. was conquered by the nation of Babylon. And then, no more. No more. The northern kingdom of the ten, if you've ever heard in the news about people finding, quote-unquote, the lost tribes of Israel, it's because those who were captured by the Assyrians and the ten northern tribes, they were dispersed. What Assyria would do is it would bring in foreign people, people of their own, and settle in the land and disperse those who were the locals from their land. And some would say, well, the lost tribes of Israel are somewhere else now. 
They were the lost ones. So the Israelites were deported, those in Judah and Joseph, Benjamin, deported to Babylon. And under Ezra, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah, they returned to rebuild Jerusalem under the Persians. They never became a national entity at that time till Rome came in, defeating Persia. And the Jews wound up living in a land under the heavy hand of Rome. And Rome was cruel during that time, even slaying some of the priests in the temple until the time of Jesus in the New Testament. And the Jews of Jesus' day rejected the Messiah in the Gospels we see. They crucified Him on the cross around 30 A.D. In the decades that followed, among the Jews, the religious Jews, there were four groups. There were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, there were the Essenes. The Essenes wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then there were the Zealots who became popular because they were the Jewish terrorists of the day. They were known and popular because they resisted Rome. What they would be well known for was to carry a long brandished knife in their pocket and come up with any, come up behind any Jew that was colluding with the Romans. And they would stab them, kill them, and then they would melt back into the crowds. The zealots were those who became very militant and because of their hatred for Rome, the the Jewish crowds would somewhat support them. And in A.D. 66, around the time that Paul had written some of the epistles, in fact, they were a part of a popular uprising against Rome and they actually took over the city of Jerusalem. But Rome, Rome wasn't going to be defeated. Vespasian and his son Titus besieged Jerusalem and they took it by force. And Jerusalem was conquered. The walls were burned. The temple was burned. And the pivotal point of much of Israel and the Jewish demise came in 70 A.D. A pivotal time. Some Jews held out in one of the mountain fortresses called Masada. Masada is a mountain fortress that is high up and very difficult to, to surmount. It's located by the Dead Sea. And these Jews held out there for three years. The Romans, though, wouldn't be undaunted in their attempts to eradicate Jews and they finally crushed that fortress The Jews there, hundreds of them committed suicide. They would rather die at their own hands than die at the hands of the Romans. There was an uneasy truce then after Rome conquered all of the Jews. An uneasy truce between Jews and Romans for two generations. For two generations, even though the city was broken, the temple was burned and the Jews were scattered, some of the Jews could still worship though in Jerusalem. And there was a relative peace. But that fragile peace was shattered when, when the emperor Hadrian visited Jerusalem and he saw Jerusalem and he decided he was going to rebuild it. In fact, he was going to, he was going to build a shrine to Jupiter right on the Temple Mount where the temple of, of their God was. And it was going to be one in which he would honor himself as well. And he would change the name of Jerusalem to Alalia Capitolina. 
That sacrilege of their holy place, when even you see Jews on television today, they'll stand against the, the western wall, the last known standing wall, and they will put their little prayers inside of the, inside of the cracks in that wall, and they will, be, they will be praying continually towards that wall, wearing black for hours. That's what the Emperor Hadrian wanted to do put a shrine there to Jupiter and it angered the Jews and Simon Barcoba, who called himself the Prince of Evil and Prince of Israel led a revolt. In fact, his fame began to grow when one of the rabbis called him the Messiah because as you know, in Jewish beliefs, Jews would believe that the Messiah would be a militant conqueror who would overthrow Rome and he, he and his Jewish Cohorts overcame a Roman legion and took over Jerusalem in 132 A.D. But Rome retaliated by retaking Jerusalem. By retaking Jerusalem from Simon Barcoba and wiping out all, all, all traces of Jewish influence. And it led from city to city, town to town, to somewhere around a half a million deaths. They renamed the city they forbid Jews from even re-entering Jerusalem. And they even put a new name to Judea at that time. And since 135 A.D., they began to call the land, the land of Palestine. That is what we know of today. The land of Palestine, after Barakoba revolt failed. So under Roman persecution, the Jews were driven from the land. They were scattered about in this world, the world that we know today, for over 1,500 years. And they had always longed to go back to their homeland. In fact, in the springtime, Jews will sit around a table, celebrate a feast. One of the, the, the child in the family will ask questions about a seat that is empty, about why we do certain things, etc., etc. They will respond in a particular way. They'll even say at the end, next year in Jerusalem. Why? Because they look forward to the land. They look forward to moving back. And there was really no hope for return for hundreds of years to the land of Jerusalem for the nation of Israel. Until the 19th century. Late in the 19th century, there was a man named Theodor Herzl. He was a French journalist who led a crusade called the Zionist Movement. The formation of a national homeland for Jewish people. And that group began to look for a place for all of the Jews that were scattered around the world. And they looked from Kenya to all the way to Australia. But in their heart, they always came back to their homeland. The land that God had promised to them. And so Jews began to trickle back into Israel. The land of Palestine. They began to trickle back and it became a flood following the Holocaust of World War II in the 1940s. And in the 1940s, finally, the United Nations declared the state of Israel in 1948. But there still wasn't peace. For once they established the nation or the state of Israel in 1948, they had inherited land of some 600,000 Jews who were living there, but there were 1.2 million Arabs as well. And all of the nations around them weren't very happy that they were there. And they opposed their formation. 
The European Jews who had survived the Holocaust began to move back into the state of Israel. Sephardic Jews from the slums of Baghdad began to move back to Israel. In the 1960s, by the 1960s, the Jewish population exploded from 600,000 people to over 2 million people. And the sense of confidence within the nation of Israel began to grow. Their nationalism began to grow, and especially the sense of God's presence and hand, and it grew in 1967 during what was known as the Six-Day War. When Israel captured large portions of ancient Israel from her neighbors, but in doing so, they also captured large swaths of land that had Arabs there as well. But in 1973, that sense of security was shattered when Syria from the north and Egypt from the south attacked on the day of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. You'll see it on your calendars at home sometime in November, December, almost defeating Israel, but certainly defeating their sense of security and invulnerability. But over the years, they continued since 1948 and 1967 to continue in skirmishes with various people, with Palestinians, But the immigration of Soviet Jews and Ethiopian Jews and Jews from around the world began to pour into Israel as it is. With less than 10,000 coming from the Soviet Union in 1986, but by 1987, the Soviet Union was allowing 71,000 in 1989. And in 1990, because of the economy of the former Soviet Republic, And the conditions of persecution there, some 200,000 Jews began to pour from the Soviet Union into Israel. But the story of the Jews from Ethiopia is perhaps just as dramatic for some 30,000 Jews living in Ethiopia had struggled with persecution. And in 1973, the Jewish authorities confirmed that these Jews and their lineage traced back to Israel, and so they began a secret airlift operation, shuttling some 12,000 Jews out of Ethiopia under the name of Operation Moses, until Ethiopia's neighbors around them, who were Muslims, complained and they put a stop to that. But yet, there were still thousands living there under persecution who wanted to leave. And by an act of God and 1991, a civil war opened the doors to Ethiopia once again. For 16,000 Ethiopian Jews were trapped in Addis Ababa, which is the capital of, of Ethiopia. And Israel launched what they called Operation Solomon. And over two days, over two days on that tarmac in Addis Ababa, every 30 minutes a plane would take off filled with Jews. Every half hour, a plane would take off, filled with Jews bound for their homeland. And all of the Jews were evacuated, leaving behind that, that time period of 2,900 years in Ethiopia, Jewish presence there. And so after the creation of Israel in 1948, When the United Nations declared them a state, Jews continue to return to Israel, their homeland. And historically, we see God giving them a presence in the Middle East, the state of Israel. 
Now the prophet Ezekiel prophesied that they would go back, that they would have land was promised to them and their spiritual return to the Lord as well. But his prophecy in the book of Ezekiel was in the millennial kingdom. But we look at the book of Daniel and we see Daniel's prophecy about the future of Israel and the Zionist movement. Perhaps there is more indicative of what we see happening. But what about the spiritual future of Israel? Aside from the promise of land, aside from the promise of, of Israel coming back to their land or someday receiving all of the land that God had promised to Abram. We see Israel as a nation being reconstituted. But what about the spiritual future of Israel? For in the Old Testament, we see their cycle of disobedience. We see their cycle of disobedience in the book of Romans. We see how they have rejected the gospel, even objections to the gospel as we look in our text now. Romans chapter 10 tells us what? They did not all hear the good news, verse 16. And surely some have not heard, have they? Verse 18. And they didn't know, verse 19, all of these objections to the gospel. Has God rejected the Jews? Has God rejected His people? We look at two passages here today in verse 2 to 5 and verse 7 to 10 in chapter 11. The answer is no. The answer is emphatically no, as Paul says. May it never be, Meganoite, for I too am an Israelite, he says, and he gives two reasons. Why God has not rejected Israel. God has not rejected Israel because he hasn't rejected Paul, he says. And he hasn't rejected Israel because it's just like the time, during the time of Elijah. The first reason he gives is because he hasn't rejected Paul himself. He hasn't rejected the nation of Israel. God still loves the nation of Israel. And this is vitally important. Why? Because there are some who believe that Israel's failed. There's no future for Israel. The church is the new Israel. There's no future for Israel. God has rejected them. God has placed them aside. He, has, he, he doesn't have a future land for them. He doesn't have future spiritual promises unless they come to Christ. This is important because it, it, it constitutes to ourselves, you know what, God will always have a remnant. And he says here, look, Paul says he himself is a Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was not one of the lost tribes of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And the second example was one of Elijah. He says, look, don't you know, in that day he pleads with God against Israel, Lord. Verse 3, they've killed my prophets, your prophets. They've torn down your altars and I alone am left. Do you remember the story of Elijah? There he goes between talking against King Ahab. And he challenges the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal who were the worshippers uh, serving underneath King Ahab. And he tells them, you set up an altar and I'll set up an altar. You set up your altar. You call upon your God to bring fire upon your altar and consume your sacrifice. And if that doesn't work, well, we'll see. I'll call upon my God. And so the prophets of Baal would dance around and cut themselves and cry out to Baal. And no fire came down. But Elijah, he drenched his sacrifice with water and he prayed to God and the God of heaven brought down fire from heaven and consumed the whole sacrifice. And the people recognized that he was God and the prophets of Baal were killed. But right after that victory... Elijah hears from Jezebel, who's Ahab's wife. And Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. Jezebel had brought Baal worship into the land of Palestine. And Elijah ran. And he said this to God. God, I'm alone. They've killed your prophets. 
They've gotten rid of them. I am myself. I am by myself. I'm, I'm all by myself. And there is no other. And God reminds him, I still have my people. 7,000 have not bent the knee to Baal. God keeps a remnant for himself. God always saves those who come in faith. And he saves them by his grace. There will always be a remnant of God's people. And the second reason that God has not rejected Israel is that God chose some and he hardened others. He chose some and hardened others. He chose some for salvation. Chosen, those who were chosen, obtained it. Verse 7. The rest were hardened. And he gives some examples of that, of what is written in there. Israel was seeking to be right with God through their own works, through their own righteousness, through their own legalism. But God says, you know what, I have some remnant by those who I'm chosen. And those who have chosen obtained salvation. Others were hardened, just like it says in the book of Exodus. God chose some. But for Pharaoh, he hardened his heart. But it also says that Pharaoh hardened his heart as well. So what are the two lessons that we can draw from a passage such as this that is historical, perhaps prophetic, for the future? There are two. We look at this passage in chapter 11. First point of the passage is that God has not completely rejected Israel. There are some, like I mentioned, some Christians in the Reformed camp that believe Christians today are the new Israel. That because of Israel's failure and their sin, ethnic Jews, they have no future. I was talking with somebody the other week, I can't remember who, but they were talking about their aunt. Their aunt was part of a group called British, British Israelism. In other words, there are some groups that say to themselves, the northern ten tribes of Israel, they failed. They turned against God. They were the lost tribes of Israel. But we are the lost tribes of Israel. They believe that Anglo-Saxons are the lost tribes of Israel. They're anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. And it's called British Israelism. A real live cult religion there. And not too unprominent. That's what some believe. Why? Because they say there is no future for Israel. But secondly, one of the things about this passage that speaks to us is that often Christians can feel like Elijah did. We're at work or we're at school. Sometimes, really, in reality, many people aren't believers. Many of our coworkers, when I was working at the bank, a few of my coworkers were Christians. Very few. In fact, I can hardly think of any. When I was at school, most of my, most of my friends at, uh, in, in high school or, or college, most of them, they weren't Christians. Most of the people I lived in the dorm with were not Christians. And it's awfully difficult because you have a choice. Am I going to choose to follow God and yet face loneliness in my life sometimes? Am I going to choose to take a stand for my faith or to live my convictions as I ought to when really it will result in me being all by myself many times? Or am I going to just go with the flow and go with the crowd of whatever they're doing and say, well, you know what, that's that and I'm just going to try and fit in so I can have friends. Taking a stand for God like Elijah did can be a very lonely place to be. No matter, the truth of the matter is God always has His people around. Even when you are feeling as if you're the only one. You're the only one. Oh, I'm the only one who's going to do this. I'm going to take this step of faith. Or I'm the only one who's going to not do this at work. Or 
I'm only the one who's going to speak up at school for my beliefs, my convictions. God has His people there. You might not know who they are, but God has His people there. And later on, people will say, I admire your faith or your testimony. To be willing to do that which is right. Because few will walk the narrow road. Few will follow Christ that leads to heaven. Few will take a stand for God. Few will be obedient. Few will be faithful. Few will obtain eternal life. Few will be called children of God. But there will always be some. God hasn't forsaken Israel and God hasn't forsaken us. God hasn't forsaken those who would come to Him in faith. And when we take a stand for God, as Elijah did here, God will not forsake us. He always has His people. And that is what the passage tells us today in Romans chapter 11. There is a future for Israel. A future for Israel. And God has brought Israel to being. Why? Because He has a plan as a testimony for them to the rest of the world that others might come to salvation. And that is what we will look at next week. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. Our Father, sometimes it may seem that Israel is always in dire straits. There have been many movements, Father, throughout history, whether it's Rome or whether it's Hitler, Father, who has tried to eradicate the nation. But, Father, it is because of your hand that you will always save the remnant. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to be grateful, Lord, to be grateful for the fact, Father, that you will always have your people. And Father, may you be honored in that. May you encourage us, Father, because you have a future for us as well, a glorious future of hope, of promise that you are a covenant-keeping God Because you are a God of promise, of provision. And our trust, Father, lies in you and your word. In Jesus' precious name.